Hello and welcome to the Rice Historical Review Podcast. My name is Michaela Knutson, the Assistant Managing Editor and your host for this episode. Today's podcast features yet another member of the review writing an honors thesis, the podcast director and producer, Eddie Plout. Eddie, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well, Michaela. It's weird to be, even though I'm sitting on the same side I normally sit on for the podcast, I'm sitting, I'm the guest, not the host. So <laughs> I'm very excited to have you come on and host, but I'm doing well today. How about yourself? Just fine. Um, so why don't you give us a little brief overview of your top, your thesis topic, and then we'll dive into this. Well, I am doing a thesis topic on Orientalism. I'm doing a case study of Edward Said's idea of Orientalism on Sir Thomas Rowe's correspondence to the Mughal Empire in the early 17th century, basically 1615 to 1618. Orientalism, for those of you who don't know, is this concept devised by Said and laid out by Said in the 80s in which Western travelers, writers, scholars, etc., commodify and basically discriminate against the East in an effort to belittle it and diminish it into something understandable and compartmentalizable and dominatable. It's like a system for dominating the East through Western understanding. And my case study is basically um, looking into the correspondence of Sir Thomas Rowe, an English ambassador to Mughal India, and how his language reflects a lot of the a lot of the elements of Orientalism. That's that's kind of the long and short of it. There's it gets it gets more complicated when you look at the specific paradigm, the specific specific system that you sort of look you sort of um, have to do study things through when you're doing Orientalism. But the long and short of it is studying how Sir Thomas Rowe's correspondence fits or doesn't fit to ideas about Orientalism. So where are you finding a lot of these writings? Where are they housed? I imagine somewhere in the UK. So how are you accessing them here in the United States at Rice? So one thing that's actually great is the, I think it's, I'm going to mispronounce it, is the Hakuliut, Hakuliut Society um, does a lot of printed copies and have for, for centuries, basically, of Sir Thomas Rowe's correspondence, both his journal, his letters to other Englishmen and members of the East India Company, even letters to King James. And so it's all very accessible. And I have like compiled and edited anthologies of it that I can get through Fondren or through other libraries in the area. And one thing that's very interesting is that Sir Thomas Rowe himself um, sort of in in the style of other 17th century English humanists believed that it was essential that his writing and his correspondence be accessible for all. That this idea of wanting to disseminate scientific, and I'm doing air quotes, scientific information for everybody to understand, to kind of expand the global understanding of knowledge in a very um, Francis Bacon-esque mm-hmm. way. So it's actually, there, there's a lot of really good access to all of these different primary sources. I'm also using um, Jahangir, the Mughal emperor at the time that Sir Thomas Rowe lands, his memoirs, which have been thoroughly translated over the years. I'm using the Wheeler-Thaxton translation of that as recommended to me by my advisor. But it's um, it's it's all very accessible. I think that's very funny because usually the honors thesis candidates have a lot of trouble or have to like work harder for their primary sources. And I've, I've really had, mine's been pretty easy. <laughs> Looking at your study, you're looking at the memoirs of the Mughal ruler at the time, but also mm-hmm. then Roe. Are you seeing any differences in how they describe the visit? 
it's actually very funny. Initially, my my paper was sort of, sort of going to be along those lines of corroborating Rose's visit, uh, not necessarily because of how Jahangir interprets it, because it's very funny. Jahangir leaves him out of his memoirs. Jahangir does not. <laughs> reference Sir Thomas Rowe at all. He doesn't reference really almost any Western visits at all, aside from the Portuguese, who are like a more endemic force in the region for longer, until they aren't and until the English are really the main endemic force. But no, my my amusing actually, because I was I thought that paper would be um, too difficult. I'm I'm probably going to be I'm going to use Jahangir's memoirs in order to sort of corroborate cultural understandings of things as opposed to interpretations of stories. Um, Jahangir and his father Akbar in the in Akbar's sort of code of ethics, they both describe ways that ambassadorial relations are supposed to happen, the way diplomacy between monarchs is supposed to happen. And Roe, an ambassador from the West, has a very obviously Western view of the way diplomacy and ambassador relationships is supposed to happen. His is very much motivated by his time very briefly as an ambassador in Western Europe to the Spanish and um, in other courts in Europe. So my paper is largely reflecting this marked difference in understanding of the way you're supposed to compose, comport oneself in court. Because Roe is able to find his way to the upper echelons of the Mughal court surprisingly, despite England having almost no credibility with the Mughal emperor, having no credibility in the empire, he's able to find his way in a seat, basically, very close to Jahangir, in a spot very close to him. And I'm going to use Jahangir's memoir to kind of show where Roe goes right, where Roe goes wrong. Mostly wrong, but <laughs> it's it's always very funny because you can't find... The only thing you can find of Roe specifically mentioned in Mughal like culture is there is one painting uh, where Roe is standing near Jahangir. It's a painting of something else. It's a painting of, I think, some other ceremony, some other ambassador is talking to Jahangir and Roe is standing in the background. And everyone, when, we, when historians figured out who that was, it, it was kind of like, oh my God, here's the <laughs> reference. This is where Roe exists. But no, I, it's, uh, I'm not really corroborating the stories as much as I'd like to. I guess my other question is, just for background's sake, how did the English and Mughal empires compare, I guess, at the times of James I mm-hmm. and to when Roe's going over the Mughal empire? Just to get some context and do exactly what Roe looks like when he's coming to approach the Mughal emperor. <laughs> that's actually a very good question because – and that's actually a big part of my paper is England is not really in as – prominent a position of geopolitical power as it will be in the coming centuries, especially at this time, considering that the Mughal Empire really is at the forefront of South Asian geopolitical control. The Ottomans are obviously the more, the slightly more Western, like closer to the West Eastern Empire that has a lot of power and a lot of money and a lot of trade control. But the Mughals are really like uh, at the center of trade and a very powerful empire in this in South Asia in the east. And when Roe comes over, he he's convinced that the that the typical rate of exchange that he's basically been used to in western empires or he can give he's a, he can he has an understanding of like the kinds of gifts he can give that are acceptable, the kind of the amount of money he can give, the amount of money he's going to get. Basically, is an understanding of like what is an acceptable transaction between the two, and basically right away he realizes that he is not 
wealthy enough, that they have not <laughs> given him enough money. Um, in his very first interaction with Jahangir, this is he lands in Surat in September, but he doesn't get to meet Jahangir until January of the next year. Surat being a coastal city, like a northeast, northwest India, and he meets Jahangir in Agra, which is kind of in it's like more inland. In this first interaction with Jahangir, he initially is going to give him a coach, like a stagecoach with musician with like harps not harpsichord but like harpsichord like players on it and he slowly realizes that this coach is not enough so he says okay you have this coach and you'll also have and he's kind of scrambling around but my sword and he gives him this ornate (laughs) gift sword that is his personal sword along with a a nice scarf that he's that he's like has it tied around him and Jahangir asks, turns and asks one of his advisors, uh, is this, is England just like really poor? Like, I don't <laughs> understand. Is this just a really poor country? And in his first very early correspondence, Roe is very clear, like, listen, we need more money devoted to this. I need to spend more money if I want um, any kind of access. Eventually, he kind of, he kind of gets it. They're able to, they're able to kind of, um, they're able to get their foot in the door more, with uh, especially with Jahangir's family. Jahangir's son, Prince Karam, who will become Shah Jahan, he's able to build up a better relationship with him by giving him like a strand of pearls. And the main the main takeaway was that really, uh, Jacobian England, James, England under James the First, is really not <laughs> just cannot hold its own against the Mughals <laughs> monetarily or even really militarily, even though they don't really have to. I know it doesn't go much probably into your thesis, but what was the response from James and his advisor from the English court to Rose's correspondence, especially at the beginning you're talking about when they get kind of the backlash for appearing poor via the gifts that they're originally giving? It's actually very interesting because the uh, a lot of the correspondence between it's, – it's, it's very – it's kind of complicated because the, the mission itself is endorsed by James I. And this is part of where Roe gets into trouble and it kind of hurts his mission. And it really – it more hurt the missions of previous advisors than Roe is that the mission is still under the control of the East India Company. It's, a, it's technically a private venture endorsed as a diplomatic mission by James I. So what ends up happening – he doesn't correspond with James a lot specifically. It's mostly with members of the East India Company. And when he does correspond with James, James is very clear in his wanting of Roe to defer to the East India Company, that it's inevitably it's it's a trade mission. They're kind of the reaction to to what Roe is writing generally is like it's kind of it's like not critical of Roe, and it's not even it, it is critical of the Mughals, but it's critical of the Mughals in a very Orientalist way where you have this idea that comes up a lot in my paper is this idea of marvelous excess where you if either you belittle and diminish the east in a way that is in a way that they are destitute and horrifying poverty at the hands of of absolute despotism or you when they're rich in the case of the Mughals you you try and make their wealth and their opulence sound ridiculous and obscene, such that you're always kind of in control of the situation, that at, at all times you're this rational arbiter of truth in a way that the Easterner, the Orient, never is. They never have control of the narrative. So the response largely by England is they, 
they're able to they inevitably will send Roe more money and more stuff to help him compete diplomatically. That that's the reality of it, that they do need that. But like in terms of the language they're using, it's always like getting back to this Orientalist belittling of of the Mughal Empire. One really good story that I, I tell at the very beginning of my paper that I think is very funny, it's it's sort of related to this point, is the story of Thomas Rowe and the painting miniatures. He so Thomas Rowe brings painting miniatures to Jahangir, like very small paintings, which he thinks that no Easterner can recreate. He thinks that by bringing these to Jahangir, he'd be doing Jahangir a favor because it's like art so good, Western <laughs> art so good, he'll never see anything like it before. And Jahangir makes a bet that his best painter will be able to recreate six identical copies of the painting <laughs> in several weeks. And this is the it's a painting of Isaac Oliver, who is a very famous, renowned Jacobian painter. And Jahangir, several weeks later, brings Roe back and has six identical paintings, which <laughs> Roe is totally shocked. He says that he was, by candlelight, troubled to discern which was which. Like, he is panicking over this, like, reality that's like, man, we really aren't better than them. Mm-hmm. And Jahangir, like, takes takes a lot of pride in it, uh, taking delight in Roe's, like, um, existential crisis almost <laughs> saying that uh, this is a good quote is that in and recruital whereof you shall choose any of these copies to show in England we are not so unskillful as you esteem us that <laughs> we're really not we're not these dumb backward savages the way you think we are and it's a it's a big thing too because it, it's not like it's a one-sided exchange in Jahangir's own memoirs he's writing about um, Westerners in the same way it's the it's the understand like a lack of a lot of it comes down to a lack of understanding of culture. Like there's a lack of you don't have the same cultural lexicon as a lot of the as this opposite culture. So you end up writing about them in a way that is I don't know that is that makes you look better and that in a way that your people can understand. That's kind of the long and short of of how I talk about correspondence. Is it's always in the context of telling a story that you're recipient is going to understand. And that's why a lot of the correspondence between Roe, kind of get back to your question, which I far deviated <laughs> from, um, is that it's all about how do they how do they talk about something they don't understand with mm-hmm. one another? It's like you're going to use words that you know. And I guess, I don't, again, I don't know if this goes really into what you studied at all, but this idea of marvelous excess, I know that the Spanish at the time were expanding their empire into the new world. So how does their description of the Mughals, at least for Roe, kind of compared to contemporary descriptions of the Spanish Empire. I mean, I imagine they'd both see them as wealthy. They're kind of both seen as not English mm-hmm. <laughs> in different ways. But I mean, one being more Western power, albeit Catholic, how does that compare if you looked at it at all, mm-hmm. um, how they write about the Mughals? I would say that a big part of it comes down to, actually, it's very funny because Roe, Roe actually gets in, Roe, part of, some publishing Roe does in his life is with is in debates with Jesuit Catholic priests on on the nature of religion. So it's not like Roe is and Roe is unfam- totally unfamiliar with the Spanish. He also serves as an ambassador to the Spanish court during the English wars with the Spanish around the same time. And the way he, all, he the way he writes about the Spanish consistently, even though he disagrees with dogmatically with a with a lot of Catholic principles, it's as equals. Obviously, the Spanish are increasingly wealthy with their trade in the new world, but he writes about them as equals, especially in the sense that he can compete with them militarily. There's no sense that the Spanish are like 
better than the English in Rowe's mind. I doubt he would ever concede something. He would never write something like that, probably. But there's a sense that they're on the same. They're on the same team, sort of. They're both Western Christian empires. When he writes about marvelous excess in the new in in the Mughal context, I think the the best writing reading to do for here is on uh, by Pramod Nair in their book um, in their article Marvelous Excess, and then in their book English Writing on India is this idea of something so absurd, something you really like could not process how awesome it is how mind it's like mind-blowing basically and but it's so mind-blowing that it's ridiculous that it, it something almost shouldn't exist that by making it so absurd and obscene and over the top you in fact make it lesser and typically when you look at this kind of writing for Roe it, it largely stems around this idea of the orientalist as the observer um, when an Orientalist writer like Roe will go to this new place, they will – it's all about them writing on behalf of the Orient. It's if the Orient doesn't get an opportunity – the East does not get an opportunity to defend itself. The East does not get an opportunity to represent its culture. So for Roe, he's seeing it almost as if he's doing the Orient a favor. He's the one making it sound so – amazing and giving it such narrative. That's a big thing is that he gives everything such narrative. There has to be a story to everything. There has to be such political intrigue when he's in Jahangir's court when sometimes it's just business as usual. Sometimes it's just like they don't want him to do something or someone tells him not to do something or he's all, he gets a, a contract to build a factory somewhere. But it always has to have such intrigue that this person did this and behind the like the shadow of darkness, they had this conversation. And in this same way, Marvelous Excess is kind of giving it this like very fun spin to what could be like a business as usual story. Um, and I think that's kind of where the big difference comes in describing the Spanish Empire, who is like accumulating a lot of new world wealth at the time, is that there's still a sense that they're equals, I guess. And um, – because he sees much of the Mughal culture as lesser, their wealth is like backwards as opposed to it just being they're just richer. I don't know. It's it's a it's a very interesting subject. I think to I think that could be that would be a cool paper too um, to write about how does how is Roe understanding like Western wealth versus Eastern wealth. I guess you mentioned another source that you were reading about for the idea of marvelous excess. How is your scholarship different from others that have, or other research that's been done on the subject, or is there any research really on on this particular subject? The historiography around Roe is pretty, actually, pretty developed. What I, it's very funny because the argument I'm making is not totally original. It's it's pretty. I'm I'm doing it in a very specific and concise way, but I'm not doing it totally originally. The scholarship around Rose sort of focuses on the writing of several different scholars, specifically Rowe in the Orientalist context. You have Kate Telcher, you have Colin Paul Mitchell, you have Richmond Barbour, and then you have a, 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 sl- a flurry of other authors who wrote articles here and there. But those three really represent like the big book scholarship on Rowe's or making specific argument about Rowe and how Orientalist he is. I'm really not using any sources they're not. Rowe's 
em- the embassy of Sir Thomas Roe to the court of the Great Mughal. It's like the essential source when you're writing about Roe, when you're writing this kind of paper. But I'm largely using their bibliographies to help me. The argument that the reason my argument kind of stands out from theirs is Telcher makes the argument that Roe is kind of an orient is more of an Orientalist through and through. Colin Paul Mitchell isn't as explicit with his argument about Roe as an Orientalist. His his book is sort of split up into four distinct cha- or five distinct chapters on Roe. Roe as as a thinker, literateur, Roe as an ambassador, Roe as a diplomat, Roe in the Mughal context. It's like very distinct standing. But he he offers some judgment of Roe as an Orientalist at the end, but it's not like a, the crux of his argument. Um, my argument is very close to that of Richmond Barbour. Roe. While he has the language of an Orientalist, while he frames the Orient in a way that an Orientalist would as lesser but in great excess, in diminishing their a lot of their cultural – a lot of their culture and a lot of their li- daily life, he does not have the power dynamic that is really necessary when you're talking about Orientalism. This power dynamic is usually colonial, but it doesn't have to be colonial. Roe doesn't actually really have any power in Mughal mm-hmm. court. He He's close. He eventually works his way up and is close to Jahangir. But the English don't really have a lot of economic pull on the Mughals. The Mughals don't want to buy any of the English stuff. He doesn't really have complete diplomatic pressure to force his hand in anything. He kind of has to work um, – he has to work under the thumb of the Mughal diplomatic machine, basically. He has to be the one making friends and not pushing people around. And there's really no sense by Roe. Roe's very specific. He does not want any colonial efforts. He does not want – because he sees what the Portuguese do where they're able – they actually set up settlements. Um, Roe thinks that the English should just not even leave the ship. They should The ship should pull up. You should make the trade you need to make with your factory and then you take off. He doesn't think that – he in fact thinks it would be basically torture to force any English person to live in Mughal <laughs> India, which is probably – I mean that's like ridiculous. But the, it's very clear how he feels about it. He doesn't, he doesn't believe that colonialism is the way for the East India Company to first – to make successful business gains in the region. They eventually will do that anyway. <laughs> but Roe doesn't see it that way. And that's kind of where my – my paper ties into the historiography and kind of differs from it is I'm very explicit about this argument that Roe and the, 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 the expression I use that Roe is an Orientalist without teeth, that he <laughs> talks a big talk, writes a big game, but he doesn't have any of the power, necessary power imbalance to enforce this big game. <laughs> and then how did you come upon Roe in this topic? I mean, did, did you start with an idea of I don't know, a region that you wanted to study and mm-hmm. stumbled upon Roe, or did you find Roe and then kind of figure out the angle you wanted to take on it? The way I got to this paper was actually very funny. I was in Denmark last semester. I didn't. I, I knew I wanted to write an honors thesis when they when they posed the question to history seniors, but I didn't really know what I wanted to write about at all. I didn't have any idea of subject. I knew that I really liked Doctor B. Doctor Balabanular as an advisor. She was my academic advisor. She had I knew she was on sabbatical this semester. I'd taken uh, two classes from her. I'd taken her history on the Mongols and history of South Asia, which covers this this time, but not Roe. And I was talking to her because I I have sort of general areas of interest in history. I had some interest in French Enlightenment. I have some interest in Russian Revolution in Chinese his, history, but I didn't I didn't really know certain advisors very well. I hadn't taken a lot of classes that kind of related to these areas. 
Um, and I knew I wanted her as my advisor. So I sent her an email. I said, Dr. B, like, I don't know what I'm going to write about. Can you get, tell me what to – give me an idea of what to write about. Tell me what to write about. And she says, well, um, I think a cool area for people who don't speak Persian is Orientalism because you don't really have to – understand you don't have to understand the language you don't have to translate the sources if you're writing about the english mm -hmm. writing mm -hmm. of an english person to india and so initially the the topic just to give a very she gave me a very broad topic was to look at orientalism in the travel logs of a bunch of different travelers i looked at dutch traveler pelserts i looked at some italian travelers i looked at the french travelers to India. I looked at basically everything. Roe as well. Roe's contemporary, Thomas Coriate, who's another English guy who will come. But it wasn't on Roe yet. And while I was researching over the summer, I, I came to the understanding that like if you, if I were to do all of them at once, then it wouldn't, it'd be just too big a paper. And the paper would be like a lot of the other sources that I'm using. It would be about Orientalist language. And I didn't think I was really fully or just like language in general. And I don't think I was fully equipped to write a paper on rhetoric because I don't, I don't know, I've never done that before. And it is kind of tricky. So I decided I wanted to do instead like a paper on like one person and how that person's language evolves because I feel like that's an easier approach to it. I kind of settled on Roe eventually just because Roe has like the greatest volume of correspondence for any Englishman. And I knew the most about England at the time out of all of the different uh, European powers that went to India. So I kind of settled in on him. But it was it was kind of a wonky path to get there full of uncertainty. And I'm glad I've settled on Roe because I think Roe is a very interesting figure. And there are a lot of very funny stories that come out of Roe's travel. Perfect. Well, I think that's going to be it for this episode. So thanks for coming on the show today. If you want to check out the Rice Historical Review podcast, visit our SoundCloud or subscribe to us on iTunes. Keep an eye out for interesting episodes with Rice faculty in the coming weeks, as well as our fabulous honors thesis candidates. Visit our website at ricehistoricalreview.org and follow and like our Twitter and Facebook. We just uploaded some very fun pictures from our pub trivia night this past Wednesday, so make sure to check those out. Thanks a lot.